Once again, I'm just going to start out by saying spoiler alert for anyone who may be recording events from the Olympics, in particular the Canadian women's soccer game against the U.S., which was just a few hours ago. Did I wait long enough? Okay, good. Because we really want to talk about the result here. So let's talk about what's going on in Tokyo this morning with Global News European correspondent Crystal Gumansing, who's covering the Olympics for us. Good morning, Crystal. Good morning. I don't feel bad breaking this news at all. <laughs> I know it's a great match. So if you did record it, you'll be fine. You'll be excited to rewatch it. Exactly, right? I just feel like how often does something this big happen while we're sleeping and we have to talk about it? Uh, boy, how great was that? How overall, how did we do with the Olympics, would you say, in the last day or so? I think we've been doing a fantastic job. You know, we had Penny Oleksiak win uh, her seventh medal the other day, the women's medley coming up with another medal. We had Andre de Grasse finishing with a bronze yesterday in the 100-meter sprint. Uh, so we, we're, we're not doing too badly. And then today... Day on the pitch, uh, I will be very honest and I will completely admit to my bias here. I did scream at one point <laughs> when <laughs> we, we got that uh, penalty kick goal. It was an absolute stellar moment for Jesse Fleming, 23-year-old from Ontario. The captain, uh, Christine Sinclair, took the ball, put it in front of Fleming. She took the shot. And I think anybody who is near a television or uh, a, a smart device at the moment screamed if they were watching this match. Oh, you know it. I woke up and the first thing I did this morning um, at, you know, 3.30 a.m. Vancouver time was check the score of the game and it had just ended. And boy, I was so happy to see that. And I know a lot of people will be. So there's more to come. Canada plays for the gold medal. Outside of the games right now, though, Crystal, how are things going in Tokyo when it comes to COVID-19? Well, this is this is the ongoing story of the games, right? It's it's not necessarily um, COVID nineteen infections within the athletes' village or within those individuals who are attached to the games, but it's outside in Tokyo. They are continuing to see incredibly high infection rates. Japan as a total seeing incredibly high infection rates. They did, of course, extend the state of emergency, which uh, includes Tokyo. But we have to remember that those restrictions are voluntary for the most part. So in some ways, the individuals who are attached with the games have um, stricter protocols around them. And that was sort of a part of the rationale by the IOC and the Tokyo Games Committee saying, you know, we're going to be very strict with these people coming into the country. We're going to make sure that, you know, they're double vaccinated, that they're, you know, temperature checks and continuously tested. And if there is um, a positive test, because there have been positive tests within that Olympic bubble, then they will go into isolation and eventually be sent home. So it is still a concern. Officials are saying, listen, these numbers are rising really high. They're concerned about, you know, the, the health system. So that is being um, closely monitored. And again, we're hearing officials saying, please stay home, watch the games on TV if you must. But there's an interesting dynamic here, right? Because... On one hand, the IOC and the Prime Minister was trying to get everyone on board, trying to say, hey, be excited about these games. Japan doing incredibly well at the games, one of the, the leading nations for, for um, you know, medal winners. Mm -hmm. And then they're also trying to, you know, dampen down the excitement, saying, okay, no, don't don't go out, stay home. Um, you know, please be, be wary about the, the virus and, and mixing with individuals. Okay, so yes, yeah, still a lot of war and got political. I know the Olympics usually do a little bit, but um, this Belarusian athlete, uh, that whole situation at the airport, that was pretty bizarre. 
Yeah, the sprinter that, uh, you know, she had said that, you know, she was, uh, she criticized her coaches that they tried to make her, this is, you know, her allegation, they tried to make her compete in a sport that she hadn't competed in before, did not train for. She criticized them, uh, said that she was told to, to get on a plane and go back home. At the airport, she contacted authorities saying that she was scared to go back home. She didn't want to go. Uh, this morning in Tokyo, she did turn up at the uh, Polish embassy in Tokyo. She is seeking asylum. We did hear from members of the International Olympic Committee saying they are in contact with her. They feel that she is safe right now, um, and that process is is continuing to unfold. But that athlete has not gone, uh, did not get on a plane, right. is still in Tokyo. It's always so fascinating what goes on there, right? Politics and on the fields. What's going on for Canada in the next 24 hours? What are we looking ahead to? Well, there's a couple of things, actually. So, obviously, soccer, that's going to be a big one. Friday morning in Tokyo, Thursday night in Canada, just depending on what day and what time zone you're in. Uh, But some good news. Ellie Black, who, uh, of course, withdrew from the all-round gymnastics event last week, just announced she will be competing in the BEAM event. That's great news. Halifax um, athlete. She's, of course, been at a number of Olympics, so she is feeling better. She had uh, injured her ankle in practice, but she is back in the event. Also, Simone Biles back Mm -hmm. in the event. USA Gymnastics announcing that she will also be competing on the beam. So uh, lots of eyes paying attention to what we're going to see and what we're treated to uh, on the beam in gymnastics. Lots to look forward to. Crystal, thank you. You're welcome. You know, we've been so busy, I think, talking and, and worrying about other things like wildfires and the smoke and, you know, the resurgence of COVID-19 and vaccinations that we haven't talked much about what's been going on with the gang situation. And now it turns out we have to because there has been another gang shooting. And this time it's in Kelowna, as if Kelowna doesn't have enough to worry about already. Two men, including a known criminal with a notorious reputation, and this is according to police, were targeted Saturday evening. Global News' Amadagahi has more, and he says investigators made an alarming discovery at the crime scene. Have a listen. This is 37-year-old Kyle Giannis of West Kelowna, a man that RCMP, in a rare move, are publicly calling a threat to the community. This comes only hours after Giannis and another man from Surrey were the targeted victims of a shooting Saturday night, putting a busy section of Kelowna's Pandozi Street behind police tape. So releasing the name of the victim is a step that we don't take very lightly. Giannis is known to police and the public for that matter, and previous attempts to take his life have perhaps made him a walking target. We do believe uh, that because of his criminal activity and his associates, he poses a real I'm pressing threat to our community. In late March, Giannis was hit in the leg, but survived a shooting outside a fitness center in Kelowna. And in 2017, uh, he wasn't in the restaurant, he went into the restaurant for help. Giannis was also targeted and shot several times outside a Brown social house in Langley, something he openly speaks about in this YouTube video explaining his life. I laid on that with my back, and that's where the holes were. Previous to that, Giannis was sentenced to 13 years in U.S. prison for his role in a failed drug smuggling operation. I said, am I breaking any bylaws? He said, no. He is originally from the Lower Mainland, but Global News spoke to him last year outside this West Kelowna home. He's ripped off numerous people in the past. And in fact, when I I found out through uh, social media, he had a a business going up in Kelowna. I actually warned them that... uh, 
If people find out where he is, he's going to get it. On Sunday, a bomb squad was called into the scene of the Kelowna shooting after investigators found an explosive. Police are asking for witnesses, while some have reported a man fleeing in a silver SUV. Giannis has been released from hospital, but the second victim, a 25-year-old man, has life-threatening injuries. Amadagahi, Global News. And there'll be more to come on that story for sure. But once again, talking about gang shootings, and it is Kelowna in the spotlight. More to come on that developing story. Monday morning quarterback. I love that, right? So apropos, because we are going to be speaking with uh, the coach of the BC Lions, well, every Monday morning at about this time, because, uh, well, guess what? They're going to start playing again. And he joins us now, Coach Rick Campbell. Good morning. Good morning. It sounds good that we have a game this week, finally. I know. This must be a little bit strange for you, right? How, how long has it been? The Lions haven't played a game in, what, 644 days? Yeah, it's been a while. So it's been, um, you know, we're all obviously very, really excited, um, you know, to get through training camp and then, um, you know, that we're on the field today preparing to, to play in Saskatchewan. So we're pretty excited about it. Right. I understand even training camp was a bit challenging because I think you got, you were training in Kamloops, right? And the wildfire smoke moved in? Yeah, we we made it through the first part and the middle part pretty well. There definitely was some smoke around, but it was manageable. And then towards the end, the last couple of days, it really got uh, got a little much. So we, we headed back here. Okay. How hard did everybody have to work to get back into shape, Coach? Because 644 days without a game, I would imagine some people might have taken a bit of a break. Yeah, we were trying to be smart about it. So, so one is in in uh, in sports these days, you you have to actually show up to training camp in shape. But you're right that the guys didn't play for they had a whole year off. So, we were trying to be smart in the off season of giving them some ideas of things that they could be doing through our training staff, and then we kind of ramped practice up. We kind of started a little bit uh, easier on the physical side and ramped up to just try to keep uh, keep guys healthy. It must have been frustrating for you and for the players too to see other kind of leagues playing, other sports still doing this, but the CFL on the sidelines. Yeah, it was. I think at the end of the day, we realized how hard it was. You, you look at, uh, at a league like the NFL last year, and I mean, they had all kinds of issues of moving games around and having to postpone games and, and doing all those things. So it's a, it's not an easy task in this pandemic, as we all know, everything that's going on. So we're, uh, like I said, we're pretty focused on the future and pretty happy to be going this year. Okay, so you got to get you know everybody into it again, right? You got to get those CFL fans back into it. Do you think that's going to be a challenge? Well, the thing that's cool, it's going to be hard, but um, you know we're going to Saskatchewan this week, and it's already sold out. And um, if you know people know anything about their fans and what that stadium's like, it'll be it'll be a madhouse. So at, at kickoff, it's going to be a deal where you can hardly hear yourself. So. Um, it'll make it um, harder on us being the road team, but um, I'm pretty excited about it. Just, um, you know, talk about a way to come back as as far as being in that atmosphere. So I know our guys are looking forward to it. Right. So is that how you keep them motivated? That's, hey, there's going to be people watching here. Not only are you playing football oh, again. Oh, no, you, uh, we better be ready to go. That's for sure. Like I said, it's going to be a, a hyped up environment, and I think it's going to be great for the league just, being back on TV this weekend and back on people's minds and, and, and going again. So 
um, I think it's going to be a going to be a good week ahead for the CFL. Now it's a it's a shorter season, from what I understand, fourteen games. So, do you have to make adjustments for that? Yeah, it's a little different. So normally we play eighteen regular season games, and we're playing four less. So um, we still go through our normal processes. It just um, you know makes each game count a little bit more. So. Um, you know, we'll go through our, our 14 games and then uh, the playoffs and go from there. So not not too big of an adjustment other than we're just starting a little later than we're used to. All right, Coach, so tell us, what can we expect to see from the Lions this season? I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I know our um, our quarterback, Mike Riley, and guys like Brian Burnham and the people that our fans know are are excited and they're fresh. I think the year off, um, while our guys wouldn't have chosen it to happen, you know, the guys that are a little bit older, you know, just getting that year of rest, they they feel fresh physically and mentally and all those things. And so um, we're, we're just looking forward to going. Like I said, the energy has been really good. The enthusiasm has been good. And I think you'll see football played uh, with a lot of passion, a lot of energy and all those things. So I think the games will be uh, pretty fun to watch. All right. You're up for this every Monday then to do our Monday morning quarterback? You bet. I I will be here. Okay, we're going to break down that game then next Monday, okay? Sounds like a plan. Okay, good luck. Okay, have a good one. Thanks. You too. That's Rick Campbell, head coach of the BC Lions. Time now for us to have a little chat with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And we're talking about, you know, the government's um, reaction to the heat wave. I guess we should say their proactivity towards the heat wave, Vaughn. Really reassuring briefing on Friday. It turned out that, uh, you know, it wasn't as bad as we expected, but I'd always sooner the government were out there telling us, uh, here's what to prepare for, here's what we've done to prepare. Very thorough briefing with Health Minister Adrian Dix, Solicitor General, Minister for Emergency Services, Mike Farnworth. Lots of questions, lots of answers, and I think anybody who tuned in, uh, had a pretty good idea what to expect if the temperatures became really bad. You're right. It would have been nice. This is kind of, I think, what people were looking for back in June. Yeah, you know, the heat dome at the end of June, um, in, in the wake of that and in the wake of the horrific numbers we got out of that, you did hear from some government supporters and excuse makers, that, well, what was the government supposed to do? You can't stop the heat, you know, all this. Well, I think the answer to what they could have done was there on Friday. It was a very thorough briefing, talked about cooling centers, about shuttle buses being sent up to up to get people to cooling centers, the importance of checking on elderly relatives and friends and neighbors who might be on their own and might not be able to get out, might be afraid to go out. There was a lot of talk about staffing up emergency services so they'd be ready, uh, staying hydrated, everything you wanted to hear, right? And, and I'm listening to this and I'm going, if they'd done this on the 25th of June when the weather reporters were warning about the heat dome. It wasn't like we didn't know it was coming. Uh, It could have saved some lives. I mean, this isn't just an argument we often get into with public policy about, um, you know, stuff that the government could have done better or whatever. In this case, there was a serious lack of preparedness at the end of June, and we saw on Friday what the government could have done to be prepared and prepare us better for what was. I was struck, uh, Simi, by what uh, Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe said. There, There is nothing that she's aware of in provincial history 
where a natural disaster has taken this many lives in the space of a week. We have 569 heat-related deaths. They are overwhelmingly uh, British Columbians over the age of 65. Uh, I appreciate her saying that's not old. <laughs> it's not. It's old enough. <laughs> Thank you very much. But it, it I mean, look, um, this was preventable. Not entirely, obviously, but they could have done more. They did do more on Friday. Right, which was nice, right? Kudos for yeah. what they did. But, but I know there was some criticism as well for the Premier. Like, there's the fact that it seemed like back at the end of June when the heat dome happened, they were a little too busy taking a victory lap. Well, he said they were. You know, when, when John Horgan, I mean, watch what they say the first time they're asked questions, right? <laughs> when John Horgan was asked about, you know, why haven't you done more to prepare people for, for the heat dome? And he was asked this question in the midst of the heat dome, you know, and then after. He said, well, you know, uh, okay, we were a bit jolly. We were a bit giddy about turning the page, about phase three of the restart program. And, I mean, John Horgan has been declaring victory in the fight against the pandemic for over a year. So it's not surprising, but he admitted it. And of course, he said the other thing, which he had to walk back or his staff had to walk back on social media, which is, you know, fatalities are part of life. And uh, all you had to do was step outside and you knew we had a heat dome. Well, you know, apart from the fact that that's callous and insensitive and he had to walk it back, it it's fundamentally misunderstood the problem because the coroner's very good on this. People were afraid to go outside. They'd been warned to stay inside because of the because of the pandemic. And they weren't warned in particular about what happens with unprecedented heat, which is, you know, you sit there in your hot house, your, your apartment or condo, you're not able to go out, you, you're afraid to go out, and the heat keeps building. And, I mean, one of the things that really jumped out at me was you become mentally addled. You don't, you don't yes. think straight anymore. You don't realize what's happening to you until it sweeps over you. And again and again, this is what happened. Now, we don't have a final report yet from the chief coroner. She's given us the global number, 569 heat-related deaths. She hasn't broken it down entirely yet by precisely what happened. And with a coroner's investigation, you get um, advice preventable for the future. The coroner doesn't point fingers and place blame. They tell you what went wrong and tell you what needs to be done next time, which is a very useful exercise. So we'll still have that to come. They still haven't uh, decided, Simi, whether to appoint a um, the, the coroner's office has the ability to appoint appoint a panel uh, that functions like a coroner's inquest that investigates global numbers. So you've got 569 suspected heat-related deaths. You you aren't going to necessarily hold 569 separate inquests, but you might ap- appoint a death review panel that looks at them all and comes up with global advice. All that's very useful. When Health Minister Adrian Dix was asked on Friday, was this preventable? Was what happened with the heat dome preventable? He sidestepped. Dix is pretty candid mm-hmm. often, but he wasn't on Friday. He sidestepped. He said, well, you know, we have to be more resilient in the face of climate change. 
No argument there. He said, look what we're doing this time. No argument there. But really, look what we're doing this time. Why didn't you do it last time? They still haven't been accountable for the answer to that question. Okay, uh, more to come on that one, I think, especially yeah. when we're dealing with the wildfire smoke. But um, also, Vaughn, this morning, wanted to talk about the BC Liberal leadership because it sounds like there's another candidate jumping into the race, Renee Merrifield. Renee Merrifield, uh, first term MLA from uh, Kelowna. Um, like a lot of the newcomers in the legislature, they haven't had a lot of exposure. I mean, we've had these virtual sittings of a house or hybrid sittings of a house. Uh, the Liberals were very much hoping that <clears throat> there'd be a woman in the field. They were hoping for a, a fairly large field, and they've got that. But it's still a group of unknowns other than former cabinet minister Kevin Falcon, who I think, you know, anybody who followed BC politics for from uh, the 1990s through to when he retired from the legislature in 2013, know him still a front runner, but uh, Merrifield, controversial figure. Um, <laughs> one thing the New Democrats really learned in opposition, Simi, was uh, the, the job of opposing, and they haven't lost those skills. Um, they have, uh, you know, as soon as the person announces their run for the leadership of the Liberals, you get the attack. Uh, social on social media. So I expect we'll be hearing uh, what's wrong with Merrifield very, very soon. Um, one could only wish that the New Democrats were as alert to uh, criticizing their own shortcomings. As they are. <laughs> but, but what can you say? You know, one Old of the jobs habits. of opposition, Simi, is to oppose. The New Democrats did that very, very well. One of the main reasons the Liberals lost their legislative majority was because of the job the opposition did in exposing their shortcomings over 16 years. So, you know, you can say, well, uh, the government could admit uh, what went wrong on the heat dome or anything else you want. But at the end of the day, the reason we pay the opposition is so they'll do their damn job. Right. Old habits die hard, I guess, when it comes yeah. to that. Yeah, it is. It's a tough issue and all that. But uh, anyway, we're going to get, I think the liberal simi have announced there's going to be a debate, a virtual debate coming up hmm. in September. So that'll be the first chance to, you know, uh, Harrison shop the candidates. The actual vote isn't until February. So there is plenty of time to get to know them, assuming anybody wants to get to know the Liberals. Um, I guess that maybe that'll jolt some excitement into this, right? Because uh, it, it kind of needs to get you going. Know, uh, well... <laughs> We've been talking, Simi, about how politics is going to seep back into the political arena and we're going to move on. But as you know, I'm a pandemic pessimist and I see enough talk about a fourth wave. In Washington State, they're already talking about a fifth wave. Oh, boy. Are we going to shake off uh, the pandemic? You know, I honestly don't know. If you look at what's going on out there, it's not entirely clear to me that we are going to turn the page on this story this year. All right, we'll see. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. We're dealing with wildfire smoke uh, this morning here in Metro Vancouver. We have that air quality advisory in effect, uh, but in the interior of the province, they're still dealing not just with smoke, but also wildfires. So we thought, let's get an update on that this morning. Joining us is Noelle Kakula, who's a fire information officer for BC Wildfire Service. Noelle, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, can you give us an idea of where we are at this morning? Well, um, 
we the fire center did receive precipitation on most of our fires uh, yesterday, so that we took advantage of that where we could. Um, however, it was it was minimal amounts, uh, trace amounts of precipitation, uh, but we're still going to take that and take advantage of the the higher humidities and that uh, that weather event that came in, but. The trend, as you just said, is going to be for some hot, dry weather again. Um, so we're back at it, uh, you know, back at fighting right. this fight that we continue. What has the wind situation been like? Uh, yesterday in various parts uh, here in Kamloops, we saw gusts of wind and then it calmed. And so I heard on many of the fires, even with the precipitation, of course, that's that's a front coming in. So we did experience wind on a lot of our fires and we continued to see growth. Okay. So I guess still hoping for that significant amount of rainfall. What do you think it would take? Like when you look at the forecast, is there hope for that? Um. I hear next weekend we may be getting some precipitation, but between then and now, uh, it's back to those hot, dry conditions. Uh, We really do need, I mean, I don't know what the real answer is, but a solid week, I would love to see a solid week of a a steady rain, not a heavy rain, but a nice steady that would saturate the ground and get our drought codes up a little bit. I know. I think we'd all like right fingers crossed, hoping for something like that too, Noel. So, like, what is what is would you say the the worst situation is right now? Like, which fires are growing? Which fires are burning kind of out of control? Well, I, I, in the Kamloops Fire Center alone, we've got seventeen fires that are out of control that are equally threatening various levels of uh, properties and communities. So. Uh, we've got 17 here in Kamloops Fire Center alone that are that are our priorities. So that and plus, then all the other fires we've got uh, trying to action, and we're monitoring, and we are we are continuing to be stretched and and challenged with the season that we're in right now. So would you say it's, it's like similar to what we've seen in the last couple of years, like 2018, 2017, which were bad years? Boy, they, those were bad years as well. It, 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 it feels a little different than 17. I was working them in 17 as well. And, and this feels just more grandiose. Um, what do you mean? Like just with, with the sense of, um, more area like we're we've got the caribou we've got the the southeast we've got Kamloops fire center so we've got more of the province uh that is react that that has wildfires um i mean 2017 yes we it just felt like we had the one large fire i mean yes there were many and i don't want to dissuade any of that but uh it it just feels different that there's so many this year. And does it feel like it started earlier this year too? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So we're starting to really feel it's really, we're very cognizant of fatigue with every single person working behind the scenes and on the scenes on our fires. Yeah, I would imagine so. So how do you deal with that fatigue? I mean, you too, you like, you're kind of working flat out here. Uh, that yeah we uh we've got people on like split shifts we've got people um 
you know, we just manage people's time and, uh, you know, mental health and physical health. And so we, we are monitoring each other very closely. And I mean, we've, we're, we've done this, we know what we're doing. Um, and so we just are really supportive of each other and just managing, uh, like I said, physical and mental mm-hmm. health. Now, are fires still starting, though? I know it's been very dry. People, you know, we've been getting that message out about how dry it is out there. People need to be careful. But do you think people are being careful or are more fires starting? Uh, Well, more fires are starting. And I saw an article yesterday, I think it was, on, you know, the amount of tickets that the conservation officers have have given for campfire ban, uh, you know, uh, tickets. Um, And so, yes, I hear that people are and people are still recreating in the bush. Um, And so ATVs and motorbikes and all of that can cause fires. And so can, you know, people hiking and on on horses. So, so yes, we still I don't know how many human caused fires we are seeing currently. But I mean, there is still the risk that is out there. So be very if you do want to recreate in the in the in the backcountry be very aware of the risk that you put upon yourself by being out there absolutely and right now though i mean any any change anticipated when it comes to the number of evacuation orders and alerts that are out there uh, we had another alert go up to an order yesterday for the White Rock, um, and so we're. And but on the on the good side, uh, the Sun Peaks area, the Edmonton fire uh, has been was downgraded uh, to uh, being held, and those alerts have been recommended to come off. So so we get a win, and then we put another order on. So we just are ebbing and flowing here. Well, the pandemic has changed a lot of things here in BC and well, pretty much everywhere for that matter. Uh, some things maybe for the better too. For instance, the healthcare system, making it more responsive to the idea of virtual healthcare. That seemed like such a huge obstacle before all of this started. But now we know that there are many medical doctors making themselves available 24-7 to remote communities in BC. This is a real-time virtual support program, and it's actually helping to keep emergency rooms open and to help keep medical talent here in the province. So joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. John Polovich, who is the Virtual Health Lead for the Rural Coordination Centre of BC. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Thanks so much for having me on. Is this like a pandemic-related development, would you say, or was this always in the works? A little bit of both, Simi. This is work that really has been progressing over the last, decade really in in rural and remote BC, uh, working with our Indigenous community partners. But really, it it came to the fore and was really catapulted in in a very positive way at the beginning of the pandemic as a response to COVID. And understanding that when the pandemic first came in the spring of 2020, there was a lot of great angst and worry about what was about to descend on this province, specifically in in rural communities. And so quite quickly, uh, a number of partners came together to really actualize this RTBS program and get it ready um, and to be able to execute on on time for the beginning of the pandemic. And, and that's what we've been seeing here for a little over a year now. Okay, so how does it work? Like, which communities is it helping? So this is a, a provincial program that's available to all rural, remote, indigenous communities in this province. It's a 24-7 uh, program where we have virtual physicians who support four main pillar 
programs, one general emergency care, two critical care, obstetrics and newborn care, and pediatric care. And, and the lineup of virtual docs uh, is, is not random. It, it, this is very intentional in choosing the, the right people to connect with all these vulnerable communities in, in BC and the providers uh, that try to support them. And so, again, just, just for clarity, this program is intentionally designed to support the most vulnerable communities. So we know that pre-COVID, there are many communities who lack manpower resources, they lack infrastructure, uh, they're really disadvantaged of where they are. And so this is an attempt through this program to address the inequities in the, in the healthcare system to provide really timely support whenever it's needed. That must be a huge sigh of relief for people who live in those communities. I believe it is. You know, the, there's a large evaluation strategy that's wrapped itself around the, the real-time virtual support program. Anecdotally, we, we hear, uh, you know, on a regular basis of how transformative this program is. You can imagine you're uh, a nurse in a, in a remote community or a young, vulnerable physician, uh, work in isolation, you don't have a lot of peers. It's not like working in downtown Vancouver where you have, a, a, you know, a, a large group of people who can surround uh, a, a very sick patient very quickly. These, pa- these healthcare providers in these remote communities are very, very isolated. And so now through the, you know, the touch of a button, literally on, a, on an iPad or an iPhone, somebody appears and say, how can I help? Are we going to be doing more of this, do you think? Or is this the way of the future? There's absolutely no question in my mind that virtual health will settle into the healthcare system in a, in a thoughtful, integrated way. We can't go into the 21st century thinking that historical ways of providing care in, in both urban and rural areas is going to achieve the type of success that we, we want it to. And so we now have embraced virtual health in a, in a new and profound way. And the question now is how we very intentionally and thoughtfully integrate it in so that it can be the best it can be right. and uh, really be complementary. Yeah, this is what I was wondering, Dr. Polovich, is how do we balance it, right? Because you can't do this for every community because at some point, I would assume a doctor, there is value in seeing somebody face-to-face. There is no question that the, the gold standard is having people on the ground. Uh, this is an attempt to strengthen and augment those people who are providing that that much-needed service on the ground. And so, for the question is, how can virtual technology and the people that utilize the technology really complement, not replace, but complement the people that are doing that regular day-to-day work um, on the ground? Because face-to-face care is, without question, undoubtedly the gold standard of care. This is a way to address things in a new way that mm-hmm. goes beyond our, our historical approach of let's just send out a healthcare provider to a remote community and see what happens. This is an attempt to build a team around uh, a rural community in whatever way that makes sense for that rural community. Right. And every rural community is different. Right. Cause I know that what I loved about this during this pandemic was that if I had a doctor's appointment on the phone, I knew what I was going to talk to the doctor about. 
right? I was calling for a very specific reason. Boom, dealt with five minutes, fine. But I would imagine sometimes in your position, Dr. Polovich, is that you've got to pull information from the patient, right? That they there may be another reason entirely that they need to be looked after, but it's you have to get that information out of them. You do. So you definitely have to do that. You also have to understand what are the holistic needs of a patient and be able to draw in other healthcare providers when necessary. And so, again, coming back to what happens in a metropolitan area, you know, if, if you have a very sick patient in the emergency room, you can, the emergency room physician can call upon the surgeon and a critical care doc and an anesthetist uh, and, and more nursing. Uh, you cannot do that when you're in Stewart, BC. So the, the question is, how can you leverage the power of technology to virtually wrap a team around rural healthcare providers and the patient at the bedside in, in a very timely, swift manner. So how do you decide which community will get this kind of moving forward? It's not for me to decide or for the RTVS program to decide. It's for communities themselves to understand where the benefit of the RTVS program might land in their, in their community. So we are out there for, as I said, for all rural, remote, indigenous communities. The What we've seen over a little over a year now is that, uh, and this is very good news, is that the communities on the edge of the healthcare system, those with the greatest need, those, those are the communities and the healthcare providers that are furthest away from help. Those are the communities that are actually reaching out uh, to the greatest degree to the RTVS program and, and, and gaining that access to timely support. Right. So if they're losing their healthcare provider, they're losing their doctor, or perhaps they need more coverage, they can reach out to the program and then the program can what, add them? Well, we try to complement what's on the ground. And so if, if a community is struggling, we will work with that community and say, how can we work together to benefit this community to, you know, get through a, a choppy time in, in that community's uh, ability to support 24-7 emergency medicine access for the community. We'll, we'll do whatever a rural community needs. And I guess the other really important part of the story is that we have many doctors and nurses who are new to practice. They're, they're either just graduating or they're new to, they come from overseas or out of this country. And they go to these communities and they feel very, very vulnerable and very isolated. And the question is, can this program, by having a doctor in your pocket, so to speak, uh, someone who has your back when you go to bed every night, will that translate into a benefit to recruit and retain clinicians downstream uh, as we move forward with time? And that's what we hope to do. We hope to strengthen the healthcare system by working with communities that are in crisis today, but also building strength and capacity tomorrow that mm-hmm. will really strengthen this whole healthcare system for the most um, high-needs high communities in this province. All right, well, thanks for joining us this morning to talk about it. Why are the coyotes in Stanley Park behaving the way they are? Why does it seem like suddenly they're being more aggressive and biting people? Now, the park has been closed overnight the last couple of nights to try to prevent more encounters. Conservation officers have also stepped up patrols. But the bigger question is, 
what's going on with the coyotes? What can we learn about their behavior? Well, actually, a team of researchers has been working on this. They recently put ground-level motion sensor cameras in the park to try to better understand the coyotes' behavior. Let's find out what they've learned. Kristen Walker joins us, a UBC biologist in UBC's Faculty of Land and Food Systems. Kristen, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sunny. This sounds like a fascinating project you're working on. Yeah, it's been a really interesting. We've had this going um, for a while now, so even prior to some of the incidents that have been occurring. Okay, so where are the cameras? How does this work? Um, well, we have the cameras throughout the park. Um, so, you know, there's no exact location that we will kind of mention, but it's it's all throughout Stanley Park. And so we have been monitoring um, activities in the park to be able to understand a little bit uh, about where the wildlife are going. Um, so not just the coyotes, but we have been um, targeting more with the coyotes as of late. Okay, so what have you learned? Like, what has what have you found most interesting about what you've seen? Well, I think some of the things we're finding most interesting is, you know, we we're initially going in to kind of study some of the 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 animal's behavior, but what we're seeing is some of the human behavior in there is probably contributing to what's happening with the coyotes. Um, so we see that there are people using the park. Um, at all hours of the day and so even throughout the night and so we have you know large groups of people going down um, to different areas and we've even heard reports that there have been raves in the park Um, and we know for sure that will be affecting the coyotes behavior because they are um, you know partially going to be moving around at nighttime. Um, We also see that there's people using off trail so they're not just sticking to the trail systems there they're going off and using all parts of the park which again you know the coyotes are retreating back into the forested area and if all of that is being disturbed on a regular basis um, it could be causing them to kind of be pushing out and defending their territory. So is it fair to say that it looks like we are disrupting their habits? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that has been all along. It has to do with human behavior. So coyotes aren't just going to act that way. They're going to be responding to human behavior. So whatever that is, we, you know, the thought was before that it was mainly driven by wildlife feeding, which is still a contributing factor. So I think this is, you know, as I've mentioned before, I think this is a compounded issue. I think there's many different layers to this to be teased apart. It's not just one thing, but a cumulative effect that is most likely pushing them to a little bit of a brink. Right. And I understand, like, I know conservation officers have been in there and they've kind of tried to cull some of the coyotes, but I know you pointed out in your research that isn't necessarily going to help. No, it's not. I mean, unless they're able to, and I understand their standpoint, you know, they are protecting public safety. And so they do need to go in when they're, they're called out when there is an incident. And, you know, and of course, when the two-year-old was bitten, they, they're out there. And so they are responding to public safety. And I think one thing that, you know, we've been trying to work on is figuring out who, who is the coyote offender? You know, is this one, is this two individuals? So that those animals can better be targeted um, so that it's not that they're removing the entire population of coyotes in Stanley Park because they're all throughout Vancouver. I mean, we know from the science that when you remove certain individuals, more are going to move in. And so, you know, I know there's there's people supporting the call, but understanding the science behind that, when you remove those animals, more are going to come in. So we're still going to have this issue. And that's the part that needs to be investigated and figured out. And um, we need to change some of the human behavior. So you know, what kind of human behavior are you seeing? What was it that surprised you? Um, I would say the, the, the things that I'd mentioned with the off-trail use, and the the large amounts of people in there at nighttime and not respecting the the you know the park being off bounds at certain times of the day 
Um, and so giving, you know, giving the coyotes a rest in the sense of, you know, they're, right. they're not able to come out and use the park um, at certain times of the day. And we don't, we, we don't truly know what's going on kind of in throughout the whole um, off trail system there. And so I think that, you know, having park rangers on the ground dedicated and kind of regularly patrolling that area would be extremely helpful. Now, Kristen, has your team provided this information to the park board? We have, yes. Okay, so we've been, yeah, we've been working with them, and so you know, there's, there's, we've had many different meetings with different officials and that. What do you think would work then to help this situation for everybody? Right now, I do think. I mean, we see that they're closing the park at certain times of the night for fire hazard. We see them closing the park for. Um, to install temporary bike lane. I mean, my thought would be, why don't we close it in, temporarily at nighttime to be able to help curb the situation a little bit and to also have some more patrols in the area. Um, we need an investigative team on the ground to be able to be studying and understanding. The cameras are just one piece. And so unfortunately, we can't solve all of this with just the cameras. We need to have a full investigation on the ground and even be you know, looking for everything. What are the animals ingesting? So what type of food are they eating? Are they eating human food? So we can tell that um, through there's some scat analysis they could do to understand and try to get at a little bit more what is happening. Do you think even like park board officials, did they also underestimate the, the human activity in the park at nighttime? Um, I'm not sure. I don't want to speak on behalf of the parks board. I think that's something that, yeah, I, I, I truly don't know. Um, you know, some people have been saying, well, this has been going on for a long time. So I don't know the extent to which this has been utilized at this to this nature. Right. These are the things that we're just bringing forward. This is what we're seeing. Um, and knowing that in any type of system like that, where you have coyotes, that will be disturbing the animals. And other ones may have adapted well, and there may just be a few that are not adapting. You know, we're seeing photos from on social media from different people that are taking pictures of coyotes throughout the park. I don't know how they're getting, you know, some of these individual photos, but we there's some with um, coyotes playing with whiskey bottles. Oh, man. That's, okay. a, that's an issue, right? I mean, we see this there. And uh, so there's that extent of, um, you know, even garbage that is in the park. How do other, like, there must, this must be a problem in other jurisdictions and other parks too, right? Like, how, how is this dealt with in other places? Well, you know, I mean, if we look at, I've, I've spent a lot of time looking to Ontario. Um, and so they have a program there, Coyote Watch Canada, which is more of a kind of coyote response team that they have on the ground. Um, and they, when they have an aggressive animal or even one that has a somewhat negative interaction or it comes too close to humans, there are volunteers that are out there working with that animal to kind of train and tell that animal, this is the boundary, that's not okay, and to push back. And we don't have that type of system here. And I think that is something that's warranted. Is that something we're moving forward? This is what we're going to have to get used to then, because as you said, we can't get rid of all the coyotes. If we get rid of these ones, more, more are just going to move in. Yeah, we need, I mean, we've been living with them here for so long and people haven't known that. And, you know, it's not like the numbers have all of a sudden skyrocketed. Um, it's just that we have these individuals now coming to the forefront that this is happening. So I think it just does bring forward um, a little bit better. How can we coexist with coyotes in this urban setting? Interesting. Kristen, thank you so much. Thank you, Simi.